Acts chapter 11. By the grace of God, we'll follow on our, the study we had this morning from Acts chapter 10. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we might see and open our hearts that we might understand and let the word of God be rightly divided that we might not be ashamed in our doctrine but be fit before thee. Heavenly Father, let us see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorious splendor as the Savior of sinners by grace alone. And let us also see, separate from that, that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ brings us those glorious tidings of what he has so graciously done for us. Have mercy upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This morning we studied Acts chapter 10. Will not be nearly as long tonight looking at Acts chapter 11. Acts 10 is the entire conversion story of a man named Cornelius. The most important point that I want you to bring away from Acts chapter 10 has to be that God has saved Gentiles and not just Jews. And were it not for that fact, we would still be outside the commonwealth of Israel and therefore outside the covenants of promise and therefore outside the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. But he has saved Jews and Gentiles by Christ's death on the cross. The second most important thing to take out of Acts 10 is that Cornelius was already born again, regenerated, and saved in that sense of the word before he ever heard the word, Simon Peter. Because we find him as soon as we open the 10th chapter of Acts, he's a devout man that fears God with all his house. The Bible says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, what made a difference in Cornelius? The Lord did. He was already born again. Why was he giving alms to the poor people when he was a Roman centurion sent to subjugate those people? Because God had regenerated his heart and taught him how to love the poor and to give to them, and those offerings came up as a memorial into heaven and were received by God. He prayed to God always, and his prayers were heard, which means... He was a righteous man because God never hears the prayers of the wicked. He was already born again. As soon as Peter saw him, Peter said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, including these Italians here in the house with Cornelius, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Cornelius was already accepted with God, which is the whole basis of salvation. It is not that we have accepted God. The issue of the universe is, has God accepted us? And he makes us accepted in the beloved. In that great day, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not going to ask, do you know me? He is going to say, I never knew you. The issue at stake is, does God know us? Does God foreknow us? Has God known us from before the world began and chose us in Christ to be his children? That's the issue of salvation. It's not us knowing him. Us knowing him is part of the gospel. The gospel message comes to teach your understanding about the God that has saved you. But God saves you by his own sovereign power through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that in the life of Cornelius. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this man who God had already given him a new heart and a new nature. Listen, Roman centurions don't get weak and start praying to the God of Israel and giving alms to the poor people and fearing God with all their house without God doing some great work already. He was already born again. And I want all of our younger members to know that. When you want to see how God works in a man's life, you want to look at Cornelius. God regenerated him by giving him a new heart. He was born again. That caused him to want to do things Godward. Because the Bible says, there is none that seeketh after God. If God did not move and regenerate men, there are none, there's none that would ever seek him. There is none that doeth righteous, Or doeth good? No, not one. That's Romans 3, and it's Psalm 58, and it's Psalm 14. 
All three places say the same thing. But there was Cornelius fearing God, seeking God, praying to God, not just once in a while on holy days, but praying to Him always. And He was accepted with Him. That's the second thing I want you to bring out of Acts chapter 10, is that, he, that the salvation experience of men and salvation must be rightly divided before it's, because it is a more comprehensive subject than just being born again. Right. Cornelius had one great experience running into Simon Peter and hearing that God made no difference among the nations. Amen. That Cornelius was accepted with God. Peter had only preached a few minutes, and the Holy Ghost fell on Cornelius, and they began speaking in tongues. And Peter commanded them to be baptized. And they were. And then they begged Peter to stay for certain days. If you were Cornelius, wouldn't you want to have that man about 20 hours a day explaining the rest of the gospel to you? I want to tell you about another man, though. I want to tell you about another man. Sometime while Luke was with Paul in Rome at the end of Paul's life, Luke wrote a letter. The letter had 24 chapters in it, as we see it divided. And he wrote it to a Greek named Theophilus. That's the Gospel of Luke. He sent out an epistle to a man that he knew, a nobleman, Theophilus, who was not a Jew. He was a Greek by his name. And a few months after that, he sent out another epistle, taking up where he left off with the first epistle, And this one was the book of Acts. And again, it was written to the man Theophilus. I want to tell you about Theophilus tonight when he got those epistles. When he got the first epistle, he learned all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up in chapter 24. But all he saw in that whole book was that Jesus Christ was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And God in his providence cut off Luke's writing right there. And a short time later, Luke wrote another epistle to Theophilus, and it's the book of Acts. And can you imagine Theophilus getting to the 10th chapter of this epistle? He's pouring over this letter that came from Luke, and he sees in Acts chapter 10 another man that was outside the commonwealth of Israel that God had saved in all the detail that Luke puts down in Luke 10. And Theophilus is blessing God for salvation for Gentiles. Knowing that in his heart, there is the same desire toward God that Cornelius has. And he's reading that 34th and 35th verses of chapter 10, that he is accepted in the sight of God by proof of the fact of his righteousness and that he fears God. And Theophilus is blessed in his heart. And brethren, we ought to be just like that because God has written this epistle to you and to me that we might see that for 2,000 years from Abraham until John the Baptist, his dealings were with the Jews, and then he turned to the Gentiles and opened up the great covenant of salvation that we might see it in its beauty and its breadth, that it included Gentiles. I hope that you can rejoice in that tonight. Cornelius and Theophilus. Let's come to chapter 11. Oh, before we get to chapter 11, one more thing from chapter 10. I am duty-bound by the Word of God in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study, to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That is a ministerial verse. Many people memorize 2 Timothy 2.15, but 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles directed to ministers from the Apostle Paul. And he tells a minister, you better study thoroughly, diligently, and it's elaborated upon in several chapters, in order not to be ashamed in your doctrine and to be approved by God, you must rightly divide the word of truth. That, me, that verse would not be there unless frequently in Scripture we come upon cases where divisions have to be made. That means you have to take a concept or a word and say, in this case, it applies to this subject. In this, in this other case... It applies to another subject that is rightly dividing the word of truth, and it comes by study. And only men approved of God rightly divide, and only rightly dividers are approved of God. And so with holy fear, 
And yet with glorious thanksgiving, I want to show you a few things tonight from Acts 10 and 11. Let me first of all show you one from Acts chapter 10. In verse 42 and 43, Peter is summarizing his short sermon to Cornelius. And he said in verse 42, he commanded, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the of quick and dead. God raised up Jesus Christ from the dead and appointed him to be the judge of the living and the dead. And so here Peter is pointing out to Cornelius that the man Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have heard about, you heard about his three and a half years of ministry, you heard about him dying under a Roman crucifixion and being buried. But I'm here to tell you more. God raised him from the dead, and he's Lord of all, and he's been appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now, when we look at Acts 10.43, we must remember, Cornelius is already born again. How do we know that? That was this morning's sermon. And it's so evident by reading Acts chapter 10. Unregenerate men, dead in trespasses and sins, still living in the flesh with no spiritual nature at all, do not do the things that we see described in Acts chapter 10. He was definitely born again. If he was born again, he was already justified. Because being born again is the Holy Spirit of God applying the benefits of Christ's death in renovating our new nature. And if he was justified, he was already predestinated because that is God's order. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. What shall we then say to these things? That's God's order of salvation. But we come to this 43rd verse, and Peter tells Cornelius that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now before God, Cornelius was already righteous. God had chosen him in Christ before the world began. Jesus had died for him on the cross of Calvary and said, it is finished. And when he rose from the dead, Jesus went into the presence of God with his own blood by the eternal spirit and put away the sins of Cornelius forever. The Holy Spirit applied that work in regeneration so that he had a new man within him. However, is there a remission of sins that he would still receive upon hearing about Jesus Christ and believing on him? Yes. In his understanding. And that is how we divide the word of God. There was still Cornelius needed to hear the message of forgiveness, the message of Jesus that he wasn't in the ground. He wasn't in the grave. He was at the right hand of God, and he had put away the sins of Cornelius. Let me show you a couple of references on this point. Look at Acts 22. Acts 22. I don't want to stay here long. Just let me show you in Acts 22 that though Cornelius was already chosen, elect, predestinated in Christ, already justified by Christ, already regenerated by the Spirit, He still needed to hear about what God had done for him so that he could receive the remission of sins in his understanding and in his personal relationship with God for the sake of fellowship, not for the sake of position. His position was final and secure, a son of God by the work of God. Acts 22 and verse 16, here are words that Saul of Tarsus heard when he ran into Ananias after his Damascus Road experience. Acts twenty two sixteen and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Whoa. Does it really say that? Amen. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Should we go into Acts twenty two and verse sixteen and think that that's really having our sins put away before God by baptism? If we do, we need to change the name of our church to the Church of Christ. Because it's the Church of Christ that believes that when you're baptized, your sins are washed away. But see, we understand this verse in the same way we understand Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. We wash away our sins as far as our understanding. How did Paul think his sins were put away until this moment? 
by keeping the law of God. Paul thought that he got rid of his sins by trying to keep the law of God perfectly. Along came Jesus, and in three days and three nights convinced him of the truth of the gospel. And Ananias comes and baptizes him in that truth that Jesus put away all your sins. Now arise and get baptized in a figure of what Jesus did for you and wash away your sins. As far as his understanding of them, put your sins away. Jesus died and washed them away, and you put them away as far as you're concerned by baptism. Isn't that what we do when we're baptized? It's the answer of a good conscience, telling God we're thankful for what he's done for us in washing away our sins. When we wash them away, it's just figuratively. Because the true washing of sins is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood. That is the washing that saves us from our sins before God. But by believing on Jesus Christ that he paid the price for our sins and being baptized in his name, that is washing away our sins in our understanding, in our conscience, in our outlook on our position before God, our perspective of where we stand before God. It doesn't alter our standing with God. Because before God, Cornelius and Saul of Tarsus were already righteous and without sin in perfect standing because of what Jesus Christ had done for them. But look at the wording. And I said this morning, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now there's a forgiveness of sins dependent upon you confessing them. That is a different forgiveness of sins than what took place when Jesus Christ ascended up on high. That was a legal transaction in heaven, and you don't touch it or taint it. But as far as your personal fellowship with God here in this world, you have to know that peace has been made. And the whole purpose of the gospel is to tell you there's peace with God. Will you be at peace by understanding that your sins have been forgiven and quit thinking that you have to earn peace with God? Wash them away by putting all your trust in Christ. He's already died for them all. That's what we believe. That's rightly dividing 1043. He was already born again, but he had not heard the gospel yet, telling him, Cornelius, you don't have to worry about your sins. Your guilt's been put away by Jesus Christ. Now believe on him. He isn't dead like you think. He's at the right hand of God the Father. We're witnesses. We ate and drank with him. We're here to tell you what he's done for you. Acts chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. Here Peter is getting called in the carpet by the circumcision. And Luke wants to point out the fact about how these Jews took so much pride in their circumcision, their little external physical identifying mark that showed them to be Abraham's descendants. The circumcision, because the great division. Now remember, there had been some Grecians that had already been converted. Remember? All the way back at Pentecost. But those boys were circumcised because in order for them to come into temple worship, they had to be circumcised, even though they were Greeks. But not Cornelius. There's a whole house full of Italians here who were uncircumcised. They weren't proselytes. They hadn't been worshiping in the temple. They hadn't been worshiping in the synagogue. And so the Jews in Jerusalem call Peter on the carpet for what he's done. But Peter, verse 4, rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, Now I'm going to read another account. And if it wasn't worth reading, Luke wouldn't have written it, would he have? The Holy Spirit inspired this, so we read it again, even though we studied it this morning in the 10th chapter. But I want you to notice that Luke and Peter, when it comes to doctrine, are not vague. Verse verse 4 says that Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order. He just didn't say to them, well, I just had a good feeling about those brethren. Their spirit seemed to be so sweet. (coughs) Have you ever heard words like that? They seemed to have such a sweet spirit. I just could feel the spirit of God there. 
Peter doesn't do anything like that. He rehearses the matter from the beginning in order and carefully expounds it. That is where we stand on Bible doctrine. We don't care what we sense or detect in that way, in the way of feelings. We look for what the Word of God has to say about a thing. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descend, as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Amen. He expounds it from the beginning in detail. And he gets to the end and he remembers the words of the Lord. And he says the very gift that we got on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, when they began to speak in different languages, was the same gift God poured out upon Cornelius and this household of Italians. And he says the very same thing happened to them as it did to us. And when I was, when I was looking at it, I remembered the word of the Lord that he had said. He would baptize us with the Holy Ghost. And therefore, if, it was, if God gave them the same gift that he gave us, when we believed on Jesus Christ, as these Italians believed on Jesus Christ, who, what was I that I could withstand God? Amen. And there's no more questions. They held their peace. That means there was nothing else to say. They glorified God, that God had opened the way to the Gentiles. Now, what had he opened to the Gentiles? I find in verse 14, are they difficult words, or are they words easy to be understood? Acts chapter 11 and verse 14. Now, over in Acts 10... The angel told Cornelius, Send for Simon Peter, he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Here the words are, Who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Was Cornelius saved before Peter met him? Yes. Was Cornelius saved after Peter met him? Yes. Good. We're rightly dividing the Word of God to know that there's more than one aspect of salvation. How was Peter saved? How was Cornelius saved before Peter got there? He was already predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. He was already elect in Christ Jesus. He was already justified by the sacrifice of Christ for his sins, and he was already born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But he had not yet heard the gospel that could save him from his ignorance confusion, guilt, doubt, and unto what he ought to be doing to please this Lord that had had such mercy upon him. That is the salvation that comes in the gospel. The gospel does not add names to the book of life in spite of a heretical hymn that says there's a new name written down in glory. The Bible doesn't know of any new names written down in glory. 
The Bible knows of all the names that are in the book of life were written there from before the foundation of the world. That's twice told us in the book of Revelation. 13.8 and 17.8. There's no new, new names written down in the book of life. They've all been there from the foundation of the world because God chose the elect in Christ Jesus and he died for every single one of them. But now there's a salvation here in verse 14. Who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Brethren, if we take the word saved and save and salvation and always make it mean the same thing, that means we're not making any divisions at all. Right. The Bible tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. I want to show you the salvation that Cornelius and his house needed. Look at Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Brethren, first verse. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, Romans chapter 9, Paul has already explained that they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He has already explained very carefully that only part of the nation of Israel were God's elect children. He says, it's verses Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. I don't have time to go back there. So Paul is talking about some Israel that can be saved. So they must be elect Israel that need to be saved in some way. And he's going to explain the salvation. Romans 10, 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Sounds like Cornelius, doesn't it? They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Here are some devout men serving God, but not according to knowledge. For they, verse 3, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you notice in verse 3, it is all in their head? It has nothing to do with their standing before God. This is such a fundamental point to what we believe in this church. Verse 3 of Romans 10 has nothing to do with their standing before God. It has all together to do with what they're thinking themselves. They are ignorant about how God's righteousness was achieved. They are going about to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness already obtained for them. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, is that a deep point? That doesn't change a thing with God. When a person believes on Jesus Christ and says, the only hope of righteousness I have is what Jesus Christ secured for me, that's the end of the law. That man has totally changed his religious life. Because up to that point, he's believed that the law, keeping the law of Moses, was how he obtained righteousness with God. If he could keep it well enough, he would earn righteousness before God. We know that no man can keep it well enough. But along comes the message that Jesus Christ secured that righteousness by his sacrificial death as a lamb on the cross of Calvary, irrespective of what these individuals know about him or do about it. He obtained it. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So plain. But the gospel comes along. Here's Paul. He sees his countrymen who have a zeal of God. They're like Cornelius, but they are still thinking that they have to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law of Moses. And he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they can be saved. Well, in what way? That they could be born again? No, they're already showing evidence of that. That they could be elect? No, he can't influence that. That was done before the world began. What salvation didn't these poor people have? They didn't understand that Jesus Christ had died on the cross in the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise all the way from the seed of the woman to pay for their sins. Right. Listen, my father was a Baptist minister. I have heard Romans 10.1 used every month of my life since I was conceived. And it's been, misabu- it's been misapplied to mean that Paul was desiring in Romans chapter 10 to go out and help people get born again. Paul was not going anywhere to help anyone get born again. Paul was going out to preach the gospel 
that he could change their religious thinking, that they no longer had to think about them trying to earn their way to favor with God, that favor had already been completely accomplished through Jesus Christ their Lord. And all they had to do was trust in him and say, forget the law and trust in Christ. And anyone that did trust in Christ showed that work of the law, the work of grace already in their heart. And that's why the Bible says as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There's the word saved. But all you have to do is look at the context. It's a save, it's a saving from ignorance in verse 3 to proper understanding and knowledge. It tells you. How about 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15. What did Cornelius think was going to happen to him when he died? Whatever the current Roman thinking was. Maybe he believed in annihilation. Maybe he believed in hell. He wasn't sure. He just knew that he ought to pray to God always. And so along comes the gospel. And what does the gospel tell us? Why is it called glad tidings of good things? Because there is a resurrection from the dead. Verse 1 again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. There's so much here in this second verse. What were they saved from? Hopelessness. Look at verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What's the great message of the gospel? There is the hope of eternal life and the resurrection from the dead. So the gospel saved these Corinthians from hopelessness. Brethren, if there's only hell, or let's not even say hell, let's say there's annihilation, and all we know about Jesus Christ is what we endure in this life, the afflictions of the righteous in this life, we are of all men most miserable, because the life of a Christian is a life of self-denial. If you live a life of self-denial with no reward coming, that's a hopeless existence. We are of all men most miserable. But the gospel isn't a gospel of misery. The gospel is a gospel of glad tidings, joy, and excitement, and hope. And that's what it saved them from. It wasn't the source of them being born again in 1 Corinthians 15, because look what it says. It says if you forget it, you can lose it. Those people who say once saved, always saved, they better make sure what salvation they're talking about. Because the salvation that's in the gospel is only good for you and will only keep you saved as long as you keep it in memory. Because if you let it slip and believe what these teachers at Corinth were teaching, that the resurrection was past, you'll lose the salvation of the gospel. Because you won't have the hope of a future resurrection. I hope you can all see that clearly. If you can't, It's my speech problem. It's plain. This is a salvation that you can lose. It's gospel salvation. As long as you believe in a resurrection of the dead and eternal life, you've got this salvation from a miserable existence to one of hope. But if you let that slip and believe something that the resurrection is past, you lose the benefits of gospel salvation. Oh, there's so many. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Many of the expressions in the New Testament referring to salvation are referring to this practical aspect of salvation that comes in the gospel. It's the message that Peter brought to save Cornelius. His house didn't know what to do. They didn't even know about baptism. They didn't know about the Lord's Supper. They didn't know about having a church. They didn't know about the resurrection from the dead, a future glory that Jesus Christ had paid for all their sins. They didn't know any of that. Now, they already had the benefits of what Jesus Christ had done. But that still leaves a miserable existence in this life. And brethren, there's great blessings in hearing the truth about what God has done for us. James 5, 19 and 20, you know them well. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. There is saving a soul from death. James 5, 19 and 20. But guess what? Those two verses are written to the beloved brethren and saints 
that James wrote this epistle to. These aren't written to unregenerate, non-elect sinners in the street. These verses are written to the beloved brethren that are the objects of James' writing in the epistle of James. And what it's pointing out is that there is a salvation when we when we convert a man from the error of his way to the truth. That is a salvation. If you are believing a lie about baptism for the dead in the Mormon church, and a man comes along with a King James Bible and converts you out of that error, that saves a soul from death and hides a multitude of sins. There's a great blessing there. This is the salvation that Cornelius needed. He needed to hear the truth about God and what Jesus Christ had done for him and the truth of his salvation. There are so many more references that we could turn to, but I'm not going to. Let's go back to Acts chapter 11. Doesn't 1 Peter 3.21 also tell us that baptism saves? The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now Save save us. What are you going to do with that? That those that don't divide the Word of God. You're going to end up with baptismal regeneration. That salvation in 1 Peter 3.21 is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's a figurative salvation. It's a salvation that's in our conscience only. That when we learn of Jesus Christ and His burial and His resurrection, we get baptized to show a picture of how we were saved. It saves us in our conscience because we get to show back to God where we believe we were saved. And that was the burial of Jesus, not our burial in water. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What save? To the knowledge of God. Let me read it to you again. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Save you from what? Ignorance about God. Amen. Do you need to hear it again? That's what it saves you to, to know God. Brethren, we believe in salvation by grace. Why we do, why we rightly divide the word of truth is so that we never compromise the glorious doctrine that salvation is of the Lord. Every other scheme of salvation in this city of Greenville is salvation is of the Lord, but. We don't have any buts. It's all of grace. We were chosen in Christ before the world began. Jesus Christ died for those chosen on the cross of Calvary. The Holy Spirit will regenerate each and every one of them. Not a single one will be lost, and they'll all be glorified in heaven, and their names have been in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Not one is lost. God gets all the glory and all the honor, all the praises to Him. There are no soul winners in heaven. Soul winners are on earth, where we do an earthly good by directing men from error to the truth. Cornelius didn't know about the truth of the gospel in Christ, and so he was taught. Those Romans didn't know that there was already righteousness obtained for them by Jesus Christ. And so Paul wanted to teach them. The Corinthians had a hopeless future without hearing the gospel that there's a resurrection from the dead. And it's all in their understanding. For those of you who are listening attentively and you want to learn how to use the Bible, remember, and I gave you this a couple weeks ago, Galatians chapter 5 points out that once you believe on Christ, if you add anything to his work... Christ has become of none effect to you. You are fallen from grace. Now it's impossible to fall from grace in a legal sense of that word. If God chose us in Jesus Christ and he died for us and the spirit regenerated us, you cannot fall from that. But you can certainly fall from your understanding of grace. And that's what Galatians 5, 4 is teaching. Ye that are justified by the law, ye have fallen from grace. Those are the words. Now, is anyone truly justified by the law? No. No. No, they only think they're justified by the law. They are fallen from grace. It's all in their perspective of things. Remember, God already reconciled the world to himself. Ministers simply bring 
the word of reconciliation, be ye reconciled to God. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. I get to come and tell you, God is at peace. Amen. Jesus Christ has paid for all your sins. Amen. He is at total peace with you. Listen, forget your guilt, forget your shame, forget your fear, forget your thinking of you're going to earn your way to heaven. It's already wide open. Be ye reconciled to God. Yes. I told you I had a great job. Amen. Acts chapter 11. And then it, but it also says in verse 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Right. Now some will run to that verse and say, See, see, there it says that you have to repent in order to get eternal life. Well, it doesn't say that. It just says God has granted, to the, has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Remember, the Jews could not believe that a Gentile could ever confess all of his sins, repent of his Gentile ignorance and superstition, and turn to the living God. They're overwhelmed by the fact that a group of Gentiles, Italians, would you, from the Italian band, could humble themselves confess their errors, repent of their foolishness and their Roman upbringing and traditions, and follow God. Amen. Where did that come from? God must have granted them repentance, just like he's been granting us repentance. Amen. It's so simple. We just have to reason through the scriptures a little bit. If a man is not born again, if a man is dead in trespasses and sin, he's not born again, what kind of repentance can he do? None. None. Can God move an unregenerate man to repent? Nope. Has to give him a new nature. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 God has to give him a new nature before he can repent. And so when God grants them repentance, they're looking at this overall thing that, wow, God is no longer just dealing with us Jews, but he's opened up this fact that these Gentiles, he's given them the ability to humble themselves and to repent and follow God. Right. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that it's, if peradventure God will grant them repentance, Amen. to what? No. To the acknowledging of the truth. Is the truth part of life? Yes. Doesn't, doesn't, didn't Jesus say that straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life? Yes, he did. And there's repentance to get in that straight and narrow way. Doesn't godliness, aren't we, aren't we told to exercise, exercise ourselves rather unto godliness in 1 Timothy 4, 8? Because it has promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Do you mean I can exercise myself to heaven? No. I exercise myself in godliness because godliness is a characteristic of those that are in the straight and narrow way to heaven. Like Psalm 15 this morning. Amen. All those descriptive statements of the character of the righteous. They're in the way of life. Because God's granted them repentance, which repentance has to follow upon being born again. And no one's ever been born again that Christ didn't die for, and Christ didn't die for but those whom God chosen him before the world began. Amen. It's all connected together. We never separate it and say, well, this part is mine. Or this part is man's. The gospel is in its own category of dealing with our understanding of these things. Did you know that, Timoth that Paul told Timothy in that same epistle, in 1 Timothy 6, 9, he said, tell the rich that they be rich in good works and ready to distribute their money. And by doing this, they can lay hold on eternal life. Are we supposed to go into that verse and think that you can buy your way to heaven? No. Isn't that what it says? 1 Timothy 6.19 Charge them that are rich in this world, they be not high-minded and trusting in certain riches, but that they're ready to distribute. They can lay hold on eternal life. How? By showing the character of those that are on their way to heaven. Cornelius is excited, and so is Theophilus, and so are we, I hope. Amen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, 
remember that was Acts chapter 8, traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now we've got, listen, God, this is, this is, this is called the time of Reformation. Right. 40 years from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. is the time of Reformation. And God is doing great things in changing the visible external worship of God. The Old Testament is floating away. The New Testament is coming into being. It had been just Jewish. We have Acts 10 with Cornelius. Acts 11, the first half, with Cornelius. But look at at the same time, some men of Cyprus come to the city of Antioch. They've been chased out of Jerusalem, and they can't resist. They go and preach the Lord Jesus to some Grecians. It's in verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Things are happening. This is Acts 11. The Lord's pouring out His blessing on us Gentiles. You better be glad for Acts 11. They, they took, they, they couldn't hold back. The Lord led them to go open their mouths to some Grecians. And these Grecians just believed it. Isn't that glorious? Amen. This was no accident. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. Now they've already called Peter on the carpet for Cornelius. These things come to the church again, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. This is event number two, and the church of Jerusalem with the apostles and elders wants to know what's going on up there in Antioch, so they send Barnabas. We first met him in Acts chapter 4. He sold a piece of land. He was a Levite from Cyprus, and he donated the proceeds to the apostles. Remember? He was also the man that confirmed Paul's testimony that he'd been truly converted so that he could join the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 9. That Barnabas. And they sent Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Hey, that's the purpose of the ministry. Cleave to the Lord. Stick to Him. Don't let go. There's all these believers that were converted by the ministry of some scattered, persecuted saints from the city of Jerusalem. And here's Barnabas confirming them in their faith. For he was a good man, verse 24 of Acts 11, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. And this is in Antioch. These are Gentiles. This church is growing fast. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Paul. Oh, brethren, this can you get into this? Do you know the excitement that is happening right now in history? Go back. Forget your little lives right now. They're not very important. Barnabas is at the city of Antioch, and he sees all these Gentiles just being converted in mass. Remember, Barnabas knew Saul of Tarsus and knew him well. And so he runs over to Tarsus, which isn't very far away, to bring Paul back to Antioch to show him what's happening, that all these Gentiles are believing also. And remember, that's the work of God. That is, remember when Barnabas got there, it said he saw the grace of God. Because when men believe, it is the grace of God. It is only by grace we would ever believe. Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that when a man believes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same power had to be used upon that man as was used upon Jesus Christ to raise him from the dead. That is how stone cold and God-hating our hearts are without grace. And so here is Barnabas in Antioch seeing men converting to the Lord and the church grew greatly and much people was added. So he goes to Tarsus looking for Saul and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they, Barnabas and Paul, assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Do you know how exciting that was? This is the church at Antioch. It has two pastors right now, Paul and Barnabas, and they're on fire. 
They're seeing Gentiles being converted right and left. They see the grace of God. The Lord is opening up the gospel to the Gentiles for a whole year. I wonder how often they met. Do you think they limited it to once a Sunday? Once a week? Maybe bi-monthly meetings? No way. No way. It would have been like Acts chapter 2 all over again. Daily, they would have taught these people. Because Paul says that several times about his ministry. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. These Gentiles were called Christians. But what does it say about them? They were disciples. A true follower of Jesus Christ. A dedicated follower. One who is in the instruction of Jesus Christ. They're called Christians for the first time. Because their whole religion was centered around Jesus Christ. The Christ. So they're called Christians first in Antioch. Theophilus is learning all about this from the pen of Luke. What a glorious situation at that church in Antioch. We're going to hear more about that church. From that church, the gospel is going to go out all over the earth. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. A prophet comes up from Jerusalem and prophesies by the Spirit of God that there's going to be a great famine. And so all you want, you want to read about a disciple? A disciple of Jesus Christ is not afraid to open this. Right. Right here. Every, every one of them. Did you read what it said? It said, Then the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Those Gentiles realized they had the gospel that had come out of Jerusalem that the Jews got first. They had it now, so they sent their money to help out the poor Jewish brethren in Judea when this famine was to hit. That's a mark of discipleship. And true disciples are called Christians, even by their enemies. Is there enough evidence to convict you in court that you're a Christian? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.